0: Dine-in restaurant services were significantly diminished during 2020. And because of this, restaurants relied heavily on digital ordering, takeout, and delivery to recover the loss of in-person customers. And as we're sure you already know, these off-premise ordering options generally happen in one of three different ways. Customers either order through third-party delivery apps like Grubhub, DoorDash, or Uber Eats... They can request food through restaurants' websites via white-labeled delivery management software programs such as Olo, Chow Now, Sociavor, or Menu Drive. And finally, customers place their orders directly from the restaurant's in-house platform. But what are the pros and cons between these services? And what does the world of delivery and online ordering look like now that we're moving back into our new sense of normal and out of the pandemic? Hi everyone, I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where, you know the drill, we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry.
1: The company Bid on Equipment recently analyzed Google search volume for phrases such as takeout or takeout near me, along with other similar terms throughout every state of the country. Along with this intensive search, they also surveyed 2,000 Americans on their ordering habits during the pandemic. On average, Americans increased their ordering habits 65% during COVID, wow. That particular percentage equates to ordering approximately 2.4 times per week and paying nearly $67 per order.
0: Wow, $67? I feel like that's so easy to rack up on a takeout tab, let alone an in-person meal. I know. So, as mentioned before, these takeaway orders can come through in three different ways. Third-party delivery apps, third-party software-enabled ordering platforms, or restaurant-developed, operated, and run delivery services. Third-party delivery services provide the lowest lift for customers, and I think in many aspects for restaurant owners as well. Since consumers can order and pay directly from an app on their phone, a lot of people are able to order at once and you have a higher chance of attracting new customers who are using the app to pick a cuisine type, but not necessarily a specific place. But as anyone who's used a third-party
1: delivery service in the industry knows, there are cons, especially when it comes to the overall profit for your business. Most, if not all, of these third-party vendors require a transaction fee that can eat up around 15 to 30% per order. So basing this off of that average order cost of $67, that's around 10 to 20 bucks of your business being given to the service provider. In addition to that, operators don't own the consumer relationship or the data, which means the restaurant can't get extra information and that restaurant
0: experience becomes harder for the operator to maintain. Mm Mm-hmm. Another ordering route a restaurant can implement is directly through their website. So, there are various software platforms that can be added onto a restaurant's website or a restaurant app that allow this to happen. And the upside is that this type of service provides you as the restaurant with greater control of the platform and a lower transaction fee of approximately 10 to 20% per order, which would be paid to your delivery management software. So, again, using the national average of $67, this would result in about 6 to 13 buck reduction of your overall takeaway. But as you can imagine, the more complex the technology, the longer the onboarding process with your employees. There's also oftentimes a fee to use the software, which can cost around $75 to $150 a month. And unlike the third-party delivery services that do so much of the marketing for you, if you run your own website or app, you will be responsible for that aspect of the job too.
1: Yeah, so true. And fellow restaurant owners understand and know how much of their time that can take up. So the final option is a restaurant having their own in-house operator-built delivery service. They've directly hired their own delivery drivers and are setting their own delivery fee to help cover the cost of the wages of the drivers, plus any additional insurance. The major upside to this is that it gives restaurants the full autonomy to control their delivery process and have a tighter grip on the to-go restaurant experience. But although the freedom from third-party fees can sound pretty intoxicating, don't kid yourself, it's still pretty expensive. Between the time it takes to implement a delivery strategy and managers to run that, to the insurance coverage and the salaries of the drivers, it equals... Yep, you guessed it. More
0: time and money. Okay, so those are the options. They all have their pros and cons. And now that we've reviewed the differences, what kind of menu items should you be offering in off premise deliveries? When answering that question, think to yourself quality over quantity. Most people recommend that you limit your menu to easy to go options that will travel well, items that your business is known for, and the ones that offer you the biggest bang for your buck. You'll also want to consider menu items that your culinary team can produce efficiently and without compromising the quality quality, even when there's a bajillion orders waiting for them to complete. And once you have those specifications in mind, you'll then want to assess delivery packaging.
1: Yes, absolutely. Moisture control is key here. No customer will ever be excited to receive a wet hamburger bun. So switching from styrofoam to materials like cardboard or paper will help to preserve the quality of the food, and it also tends to be more environmentally friendly. For any hot food that needs to be wrapped, loose and vented packaging is key. In addition to separating some of the ingredients, like set hamburger buns from the patty and the veggies. Plus, too, it'll give your customers a fun little DIY to do on their Friday night in. It's like cooking. Don't be stingy about the aesthetics either. This is your customer's first impression of your brand, so make sure you're deliberate and intentional about your packaging.
0: Man, it's so true. I always notice when a restaurant has spent time on their packaging, and I definitely think to order from them again. So, as the world begins to open back up, there are some questions surrounding the ordering habits of consumers in a post COVID world. Will they order as much? Will they move really far back to in-person dining? What do consumer dining habits look like in general coming out of this? Time is going to tell on a lot of these, but there are a few things we're pretty certain of, one being that delivery isn't going anywhere. And as if ordering food and having it delivered to you wasn't convenient enough, an article I recently read in the Wall Street Journal predicted that consumers will want even more convenience from restaurants and other retailers coming out of the pandemic, which means super fast delivery times. How do you normally order when you go out, Zach? Uh, it really depends. I, I honestly, yeah, I,
1: I have to agree with what we were talking about, the wet hamburger bun. I specifically cite fried chicken, wet hamburger buns, stuff like that. Th- those don't deliver well. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually when I'm ordering out as a New Yorker, lots of pizza. I like rarely go out to eat pizza. I, I have that sent to me all the time, which, you know, classic travels well for the most part. But I honestly think that's one of those things that people expect. That's, been, that's like a time old delivery product. The, the idea of getting everything brought to you now, like I have friends, they wanted to eat ramen during the pandemic. And I was like, yeah, ramen does not travel well. Like that's not the sort of thing. I love the experience of sitting down yeah. at a ramen. ya yeah, And like in, 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 eating there, because it's gotta be like piping hot. The noodle texture is key. And even the places that know what they're doing, they separate all the ingredients out. Like you have to put it together when you get it. It's just, it's hard. So I, I limit what I order based on what I know is going to travel well. And I have for a long time especially during uh, the the new reality of there being so much available. But it's like kind of hard. What do, I mean, what do you do?
0: I tend to look at the website first. So I will always check the restaurant to see if the restaurant is offering their own ordering on their website, yeah. mostly because I know so much – there were so many complaints about third-party delivery, and it's kind of like they're – in many ways, they're a necessary evil. Yeah. Um, and, and in many ways, they – you know, they also they they did some good too. I mean, I'm not I'm not completely anti third party delivery apps. I think they exposed me to restaurants that I would have never gone to, and I think what we were talking about before. I don't always order from the same pizza place on the corner. I. I go on Grubhub and I say, "Hey, what's I want pizza tonight?" And I kind of browse around and I see what what's being offered out there. So, I mean, I also did have good ramen, by the way, during uh, during the pandemic, especially during those cold months when Delivery? I really wanted it. Yeah, I did. It wasn't the same yeah. for sure. It definitely it's not the it, same, but it still hits. Yeah, right. it wasn't the same, <laughs> but I had it, I thought it was good. It was good enough, especially when it was really cold out and I just needed some soup. <laughs> oh, that's not really soup, but
1: I get, pho- I get pho delivered all the time, which I actually didn't think would be something that travels yeah. well, but it does. Like we, the places that I usually deliver or get delivery from near me comes super fast. And as long as it's still hot when it gets there, it can still work, which is again, something two years ago, I never would have tried to get that yeah. delivery, but I was craving it super bad. And now like, I realized like this works. I just, I had to buy myself extra big yeah. bowls so I could like dump everything. Like, but that is basically the only change that I had to make. I think also the last year has kind of taught me, like you said, like I, I'm not like devoted to one place in particular. I think sushi is one of the favorite, my favorite things. That's to order. that's my in. least favorite. Um, we definitely have a local spot near us that we go to. You really – I love – I mean, the fact that you can get it and it always – it's not going to get cold. That's true. You know, like it's the one of the – or I mean, it might, but that's a good thing.
0: I swear it does not taste as good when it arrives at my door. Like that is the one thing that I'm always super cagey about ordering because I find that when I'm sitting at the sushi bar, it's so fresh. I'm like – I don't know. I I sometimes wonder too. I'm like, are they using a different kind of sushi when they they send it to me? Am I getting the best quality because I'm off premise and I'm not – I guess it's
1: like air exposure – (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. I think some of the hardest things to do, like like sushi is definitely one of those things where I'm like, okay, if they have like a bumpy ride, but like a lot of the places around here I know they're through their own app. They they do it themselves. Yeah. So I which I think is more important. I have had so many bad experiences. Like speaking of pizza, last week I ordered one. Uh, I was like working on late on something on a Saturday night and I just like brain wasn't into well, I wasn't into looking any anything intense, and I just ordered pizza from a place I don't usually get it from and it was their third-party app and the pizza came and it, it like the guy clearly like dropped it or like something had happened first i was super late secondly like i got it and the toppings and the cheese had all slid to one side of the pizza and i was like god i'm like this ruins everything oh yeah I understand, that is the like, worst like, it's not easy i delivered pizza in high school i know what it's like it's not an easy job yeah but i for for like a month it was also the worst job i ever had but
0: <laughs> so now that you've done that do you still do you still tip? Do you still tip the driver even if the cheese is slid off the side?
1: You you definitely still tip the driver. I mean, I didn't know until he left, but I also I know how hard it was. A dog's lunging at me <laughs> yeah. when I was it's it's a it is a hard job. Um,
0: wow, I think we should save a special podcast episode just to talk about your pizza delivery days and all of the fun and the fun and exciting encounters that you that you had along the way. I've had some good jobs. I worked in a pizza parlor.
1: I worked in I made subs. I was like 14 years old, and it was, it was a great job, but. But that pizza when it was ruined, I was like, "This is terrible." And I went online and I looked, and they were like, "The you can tell when a place is doing third party apps because we're like, the food took forever. Yeah. It was super cold when it got here. Bad experience." And I'm like, "This isn't their fault. Like, they probably had a guy who just like got lost, didn't care." We've had problems with that in our business. Like the my business partner's wine shop. We've had people bolt with a product, oh, like God. steal the wine, steal the spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had people, yeah, which is weird, but happens. We had I actually had someone steal a massive beer order. Uh, that we were using through doordash back in the day, and that's uh, just one of those things that like you you like handing off the responsibility of the experience to a third party can really end yeah, up it's a risk. you know biting you in the ass a little bit because these guys don't have the same skin in the game, and if they're gonna you know repeat is gonna show up with the topping slid off to the side and freezing cold, yeah, you know they're they they do not care. they got their money, uh, but you are you're left with a bad review, mm-hmm. and then people are gonna see that yeah
0: i I, I agree. Today we have the owner of New Light Hospitality Group and the host of Nashville Restaurant Radio on with us, Brandon Still. Brandon's experience ranges across the restaurant industry, from supply chain to in-house operations to restaurant consulting. He's grown the Nashville community and used his show to help inform those in the industry. So we're excited to talk with him today about what's happening in Nashville, what restaurants should be focused on right now coming out of the pandemic, and his learnings from talking to so many restaurant owners this past year. Brandon, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Claudia, so much. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Brandon, seriously, thank you so much for coming on today. We- No, you're a very busy person. You're clearly up to a lot, but uh, I just kind of want to kick things off because you're in one of my favorite food cities in the country, and as someone who's been in so many different aspects of the business, just kind of hear like I want to hear from you. What's it about Nashville that makes it so different from other cities, and why is it so special? If you can even explain that, you
2: know what? Nashville's an interesting melting pot. I think Nashville has a perception that it's country music and it's kind of hillbillies, but the culinary scene is a melting pot from people from all over the country who have got here. And I think that there's a, the whole Southern hospitality thing in Nashville where are kind of nice. And uh, we've got some amazing leaders who've uh, who've been trailblazers in our industry for a long time. Uh, Margot McCormick, the Randy Rayburns, the Tom Moraleses, who really set the tone for, hey, we welcome everybody. We're happy to have you. Let's all be friends. Let's all support each other. So as a locally owned and operated community, the chefs and restaurateurs were very, very friendly. We all kind of support each other. I think it's a very cool vibe. It's something that a, a lot of people come from other towns and they go, I'm not, I didn't expect every, like all these other chefs to come in here and, and, and like befriend me. Like, this is so cool. It's a neat, it's a neat environment.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, too, when I think about Nashville, I think about the music. And so I don't know, where do you see the intersection of food and music and how's that's influenced? I feel like it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg thing here. but
2: it, Well, it is a little bit. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who are musicians and chefs. Um, and I think one of the things is, is that there's a creativity in people. And when you come to Nashville and, and you think you're a musician and you live in Idaho and you move to Nashville, oh, you, you learn really quick. That there is a ton of talent in this city. yeah. And I think a lot of people have taken jobs, waiting tables or doing other things while they're pursuing a music career. And food is a, is a really unique way to channel creativity. I mean, you see some of the stuff that goes on plates and mixing flavors and just what they're doing. And I think a lot of people who are very creative, very talented people have moved to Nashville for music and ended up channeling that into another field.
0: That makes sense. So Brandon, how did you actually get started in Nashville. Have you always been in Nashville? And I know that you've done a lot from all different parts of the industry, from the food service side to the na- restaurant operation side. So how did this all start for you?
2: I moved to Nashville in 1988 with my father. My father was a Christian music magazine publisher. Oh. Um, he had multiple magazines. He started a magazine called CCM Magazine, Contemporary Christian Music, which was the largest circulated Christian music magazine in the world for a long time. So we moved to Nashville for for that. It's much more prevalent here than in Southern California, where I was born. Yeah. And uh, we we moved to Nashville as a two year trial to see if it worked. And I I was a little beach kid. We moved to Nashville. I didn't know if the roads were paved. You know, 1988, it was the scariest. It was was not the Nashville everyone to move to today. (laughs) Not a lot happening in Nashville. I think I turned 18. And my dad was always a hey, when you turn 18, you can do whatever you want to do. And I, I was in high school and I moved out. And I got an apartment when I was 18 in high school. And I started waiting tables. And I just I think there's some aspect of the, the service industry to me that just my my love language is acts of service you know so it just makes me happy to help other yeah. people it's one of those things that i feel that i think you have to have to really do well in this career not and i say do well not like make a lot of money but to be fulfilled as a human being in what you do
1: important distinction there too
2: so i've been in nashville for t- 33 years
1: it's a long time long time
2: yeah i, I my i one of my jokes is that people that move to Nashville, they go to Vanderbilt or somebody, I'll meet somebody and they'll go, how long have you been in Nashville? And I'll say 33 years or 30 years or whatever it was at the time. And they'll go, I-, I consider you a local. And I'm like, do you? Thank you. I'm glad that I have your validation as a Nashvillian. This is exciting for me. Uh
0: I wonder how long you got to live in New York City for that for them to consider you a local. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say for us, Ed, Ed Koch used to have
1: a rule. Ed Koch used to say ten years, but <laughs> I feel like given the last few years with Sandy, with the pandemic and stuff, I feel like you get little passes on like where you've been. I think it bumps you up in line quite a bit. So I would d- certainly say thirty-three or thirty-five years old, thirty-three years in Nashville makes you Nashvilleian, but I don't know. I'm not from there, but I, 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 I'm gonna,
2: I'm gonna go with it. It's a thing.
1: Yeah, honestly, and and, uh, and uh, Nashville is the kind of city that it definitely deserves that kind of mile marker. You need to know how long it is before uh, you can call yourself a true true local. Well,
2: I've seen Nashville change a lot. So,
1: well, that's important too. Actually, I was going to ask you, like, I mean, as someone who's like, when you're in the food industry, you're really at like a kind of ground zero in terms of what changes in a city or what's the cutting edge of like what's happening in most places. What, how has your experiences in, in the food world, covering it, working in it, all the above, how has that like made you aware of what's going on in the city. Cause I definitely, even I only been in Nashville a few times. I can see the city's changed drastically.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just, you can see it. It's a gradual change. Uh Big things happen. You know, we, um, we originally got downtown was a scary place to go down. Broadway was not a place you wanted to go when I moved there. Then we got the hard rock cafe and the hard rock cafe kind of anchored second Avenue. And it was like, um, Oh wow. now there's a reason to go downtown that doesn't involve like peep shows. <laughs> um, and then we got a, Planet Hollywood and the Planet Hollywood was another big draw downtown. And I think it just kind of started building from there. Then we picked up the Tennessee Titans, so we've got an NFL team, and then we got the Nashville Predators. And then that I mean, those were like the real building blocks, the foundation for what kind of built Nashville is that Nashville's known for being a small town where I go to a hockey game and I'm going to see like 30 people that I know. You know, I'm going to walk around I'm like, hey, good to see you, good to see it. It's just one of those things because I've lived here a long time and. I like hockey, and a lot of my friends like hockey. It's just one of those things, but it's a big deal when those things happen. And our city is built on on, on all of those um, those big four major things, like downtown development, and the Titans, and then the Predators, and then people just started coming, and they started putting us on the map. And um, you can see from James Beard Award winning chefs moving here. Sean Brock moved away uh, when I worked with Sean Brock when I first got into the sales side of the industry when he was at the Hermitage Hotel, and then he moved to go to Grady's and Husk. And now he's back. And, you know, he came back to Nashville, really. He's about to open the Audrey, which is, from what I understand, it's it's Nomo South. I mean, it, it's that style of restaurant that's just going to be... He's going for world's best restaurant, is what I understand. Sean Brock's going with Audrey. And uh, I haven't got to see it yet, but uh, I'm excited to see how that puts us on the map. And I think the Catbird Seat also was a, was a restaurant that was very pivotal for our city also. Strategic hospitality.
1: Well, so, I mean... I know we kind of gleaned on this before, but I want to hear from you, what what kind of, what's your genesis story with food? What what pushed you to kind of embrace the industry? I know when you move, a lot of people, they, they get drawn to it, like you said, because acts of gratitude are important to them. But I'm just like, interesting to hear more about what finally pushed you into it. What was your, what was your first job? My first
2: job was at uh, J. Alexander's and I was a server and I got fired from that job and uh, I wasn't very good at it. And Then I went to Ruby Tuesdays and I was really good at Ruby Tuesdays. And I kind of found my stride there. I mean,
0: <laughs> wow, going
2: from Jay's where I wasn't good to a restaurant that, you know, they didn't give a darn about what you did. I was like, Hey, whoa. whoa, 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 And, um, I think I elevated what we did there. And all of a sudden I,
0: that fits though. You have a lot of personality. I- it was, it, yeah. I mean,
2: well, it was a good time, you know, and I like to party. I mean, I was a, I, you know, I like to, to partake in the adult beverages and, um, Every once in a while, you know, we would uh, we'd wrap up the devil's lettuce and and have a good time, but I mean, I can't. That's what the restaurant industry is about for me. It's about camaraderie. It was about growing up in my life and being a middle child. And you know, my brother was always the golden child, and my sister was always the baby, and I was this kind of this outcast, and I I knew it. And when I got into restaurants, I was kind of in the land of misfit toys, and it fit in all these highly dysfunctional people that um, were just like me, it was the first place that I felt like I could be myself. And I was accepted in uh, under this like pirate crew of people. And I was able and I didn't realize how much I liked serving others, like how much how great it made me feel. And of course, a bunch of cash and, you know, uh, late nights partying, doing shots, and just kind of getting into that lifestyle was what what it did it for me. I mean, it evolved. I got my first manager position at 22. Wow! And um, I've never, and since that day, I've been in leadership in some way or another uh, with a manager type in my title. And um, I just love. I love teaching. I love taking other people and helping them grow, seeing, recognizing talent, and trying to cultivate it and mentor people to be the best that they can be.
1: See, I knew we would get along because that's that's like honestly the same thing that kept me in the industry for as long as it was never intended to fall into this industry, but just like that kind of feeling of camaraderie, like, do you, did you have any mentors or anything like that? Or anyone specifically who kind of like took you under their wing to teach you the ropes or even small ones along the way?
2: No, I did. Um, There was a guy who owns a group called four top hospitality here in Nashville. His name's Doug Hogreif. Doug was one of those guys that I met when I was 20 years old and I was, a I was cocky and arrogant and I, I was the cool, I look, I had it all down I'll never forget the story. I I walked into his restaurant, and it's called Amerigo. This is a beautiful brand-new restaurant. And I sat down, and I was just checking it out because I was looking for a new place to go work. And he was standing there, and I I had my lunch. I had a duck and sausage pasta. And I walked up to him, and I go, Hey, man, what's your name? And he goes, I'm Doug. And I said, Hey, Doug. I go, What do you do here? And he goes, I'm the general manager. And I go, You have a very nice restaurant. I'm thinking about working here. And, and, And he looked at me. And he looked at me and he's like, <laughs> easy, Turbo. Why don't you go fill out an application? I'll see if I have time to talk to you. And it was just this moment. He? of <laughs> He did. And he hired me. And um, he never. That, so it worked. It did. It did. But he, you know, he was one of those people that nurtured me and he never let me, you know, he never let that ego get out of control. He always kept me in check, but then always gave me the right amount of hey, you're doing a good job, keep doing this, but you also suck. And through that, I, I kept a little bit of humility somewhere in my back pocket. And uh, it was just enough to work. And I, that was a great company to work for. And he's one of those people that throughout my career, I've always uh, considered him a friend and uh, somebody who taught me so much, just so much, that whole experience uh, working with that company. And my first experience being a manager, the way that they did it really, set the tone for my entire career.
0: So, okay. You are in these leadership roles. You've been talking to a lot of operators this past year. Let's, let's move to what you're seeing in the industry, how things have changed, lessons learned, some pain points that you're seeing. I mean, tell us what it was like this past year.
2: You know what? This is a really good segue because I have something called Brandon's book club. One of the things that I started here a couple months ago, and I haven't been great at it, but as I'm the director of operations for two restaurants, Mirables and Green Hills Grill. And I want to develop people as I I mentioned, I want to have like a a group of people that are like wanting to be in management that I can start developing early, have like a farm team of people that are just ready to go. But I wanted to open that up to the entire city because I love reading books. I love reading books on leadership, growth, anything that just provokes your mind to start thinking a little bit differently and and kind of really uh, help you grow. So I started a thing called Brandon's Book Club, and our book this month is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Are you guys familiar with this book?
1: I'm not. I'm not, no.
2: So fantastic. So one of the things that I've recognized throughout all of this is that as we get back to some semblance of normalcy, a bunch of teams have been disrupted right, where you had restaurants that were flowing really well. And there's an ecosystem inside of a restaurant where everybody knows kind of each other. You get it in 2019, we're in a nice little groove. A lot of people left. A lot of people got laid off. A lot of people who are talented people in leadership or, or likewise that had other abilities left the industry. And some people joined the industry from other industries because they had the opportunity to learn. And yeah. the, the, kind of the entire dynamic of most restaurants got shaken up. And I think that one of the big problems that we're going to be facing, if we're not facing it now, a lot of people are going to listen to this and go, oh, my gosh, he's so spot on because you have all these people that have come out of a pandemic who've changed themselves. I kind of I've I've said that we're all kind of like, you know, caterpillars that have gone into a chrysalis over this past year. And we've all come out now. Are you a moth? Are you like this beautiful monarch butterfly? What did you decide to do? And a lot of people have so you have a bunch of new teams of people that aren't used to working together. And I think right now, a lot of people are feeling some of that. I don't like these people that I work with. This isn't something that's normal. And they're they're trying to figure each other out. So this book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, goes through all the different dynamics of a team and how you can work better together. And getting the band back together is probably not going to happen in a bunch of circumstances. And you're going to have to learn how to work with the people that you've got especially right now. I mean, the staffing issue is, is legitimate. It is all over the place. And right. it's not like you can just fire people. The old days, I mean, you could you could get rid of people that didn't match your culture and you just hire people that were more in line with your thoughts. And now, you know, there's a little bit more acceptance. There's a little more coaching that needs to happen. There's a little bit more, hey, I'm going to learn how to work with this person and understand their strengths and their weaknesses. And, 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 we all have to be vulnerable with each other and we have to trust each other that our ultimate goal is to take care of the guest and that we're all in this thing together and when you start politicking and creating silos from front of the house back to the house management servers all these different areas it just it breeds problems and this book the five dysfunctions of a team really breaks down all of those aspects and so i wanted to open up that book to the entire city to the entire culinary community anybody that really wants to get involved but we're going to talk, we do a Zoom call at the end of the month with everybody that wants to be on it. And we're going to take all of those things and have people talk about their, their current situations and, and just break it down amongst the entire restaurant community. And hopefully that's something that um, we'll be able to help people. So I think that's a real dynamic that we're going to start dealing with real fast.
1: That's an incredible sense of community to hear about because it not, it's not common. National, it may be a, you know, a, a smaller city, but it is not a small city across the board. There's a lot of restaurateurs there. And it's kind of incredible that you guys come together to discuss this. I, I mean, from my experience, everyone's feeling that, that labor pinch coast to coast. But have you talked to, is that really for most of the people you've spoken with, like have, has anyone kind of come up with any solutions for it? Or what have you seen working so far? Or is this has this book come up with any like golden nuggets that we could probably uh, start incorporating to this practice? Because I'm, you know, I'm certainly, I was lucky I didn't have to lay anyone off in, in my business in the city here during the pandemic. But it's uh, definitely feeling like Rebuilding teams is a very different operation in 2021 than it was in 2019.
2: I don't think there's a silver bullet right now, and um, everybody's in the uh, everybody's in a tough situation just because of the lack of people to do do the work. And there's a lot of different excuses you're going to hear as to why and, and what's going on. But um, I, I take the stance with my two restaurants right now, and we and we are short staffed. I take the stance of I am never going to use the pandemic as an excuse. Right. So I've just said that I've said to my entire leadership team, we are never going to tell a guest, I'm sorry, there's a goal because we know there's a global pandemic. We know it's there. We've got to try and get ahead of it. You know, as leaders, there's no there's no book by Patrick Lencioni that says how to lead during a pandemic. So we've all had to really get down and and set a standard for how we want to lead people. And one of the things I've said is we have to be ahead of this stuff and we've got to understand it. So with the hiring. I think that the old, hey, we're hiring for line cooks, come see us, check out our Facebook page. We're hiring $16 to $22 or you know, $16 to $18 for line cooks. I think those ads that you see on a lot of these, these job boards or Facebook groups, I think those are those are tired. They're boring. Nobody's responding to them and that you've got to get creative. I'll tell you, I have an idea. I mean, this is something that we're going to do, but I'm, I'm going to do videos. right? So I'm going to do a video where you show me walking into the restaurant, and I'm saying, welcome to Maribol. And then as you walk in the door, we have a server fighting with the host, going, I said four tops, and like just screaming and fighting. And then I'm going to go, oh, oh, well, our guests are fantastic. I'm going to go <laughs> to different room. I have a guy go, you call this a steak? And he's going to throw it across the room. I'm going like, oh. Okay, and then I'm going to walk into the kitchen where there's like wow. the guys with knives like fighting and I'm going to go, "Hey, we're not perfect. We're a restaurant, but we're hiring like, you know, kind of a fun thing. Like, I don't know what you have to do to hire people right now, but just stating that you're hiring, isn't it? I think you have to pay people more money. You have to offer people um a good environment. You you need to have a place where you don't have the misogynistic guy yelling at people and you can't. It, there can't be. Like, you've just got to do the right thing by people. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people are understanding now, but some still don't get it. Um, and there's a lot of frustration. Why don't people want to work here? I'm like, well, you're a dick. Sorry, there it is. There's my word. You're okay. <laughs> I can use bad words.
1: That's okay. No, that's fine. It's, there's really no other word for it, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, you you um, you got to change your ways. You got to be a good employer. And I think there's a lot of people that do it really well. And there's a lot of people that are in the process of uh, learning.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what was 2020, if not a gigantic learning curve uh, of outside of a terrible human tragedy, obviously, yeah. but also just being forced to reckon with everything. And I I kept to stop using this quote because I say it every podcast, but like people, when you're done with this whole thing, they're going to, they're going to build things back better than they were originally. There's no reason to build it back exactly the way it was because we were far from perfect industry. Uh, and I think... Going forward, I'm hoping the silver lining to all the terrible stuff that happened is that we can actually emerge from this as a better, uh, more prepared industry that can enrich everyone who works in it lives. And, and I guess for the next year, do you see anything else besides the, sh- the staffing issues and the shortages? What else do you, th- do you see being some of the other trending topics of that needs to be addressed that maybe need to be addressed immediately? Stuff that will maybe just kind of linger on from COVID that won't go back to normal? Is there, is there anything else you've noticed that, uh, that probably going to change?
2: You know, I've noticed that there's like, there's like three different types of people through this thing. There's the people who, um, are legitimately, you know, at risk and that can't come in and, and don't work and are just staying at home and they're, they're just hanging out. And I totally understand that. And then you have the people that are like, this is happening to me that we're all victims and woe is me. And I don't know what to do. And they just kind of hang back and they're waiting for somebody else to do something. And then I think you're going to see people who are like, this has been the greatest opportunity that I've ever had. Yeah. We just had a year where like every, every, and I was a salesperson for 14 years, you know, where I went in and worked with chefs and every single chef said, I just don't have time, man. I just don't have time. I just don't have time. And so I think after the initial wave of like just hustle and bustle and what, what the heck are we going to do? People went, Hey, we actually have some time. Let's upgrade. Let's do the things we need to do. And I think the one thing that you're going to see come out of this is innovation like you've never seen before. I think that the level of innovation that we're going to see when it comes to hospitality is just scratching the surface. There's been so many people that have taken this as an opportunity to try things they would never try when they were busy. And a lot of them have worked. I'm not yeah there's no, I don't have like an example of what it is yeah. but I mean, we're doing all kinds of changes in our building just in the way that we do service we've gone to a tip pool um really because it just it spreads the equity for everybody in the building and everybody on staff gets paid more money uh we do a lot of events in our restaurants and it's not like there's like four people that make 80% of the money and now that's not the situation everybody in the building makes a really good living wage and uh I think it's easier to keep staff that way. That's just a small thing. But I think you're going to see a ton of innovation. I think that's going to be something that's great. And the people that are really good tours have done a really good job throughout this. And I think that this also has weeded out a bunch of people that uh, just weren't very good at it. And, I mean, I'm not saying that people needed to close or their dreams needed to die. But if you're not a good operator, I don't want to say that this has thinned the herd, But I mean, I think that, um, for the really good operators and people that this is their passion, they do it really well. And hopefully after, you know, in the next coming months in this, you know, at post-summer season, if we can get rid of this thing, I think you're going to see a real boom and you're going to see a real, um, you're going to see a lot of innovation and, and quality.
0: Well, I think customers notice too. I mean, I notice the restaurants that I think have either changed, modified, or really knocking it out of the park. I mean, even when it comes from the whole restaurant experience, the online ordering to how how it moves when I'm actually in the restaurant to to just the whole thing. Yeah. So, I guess I I mean, do you do you have any examples of restaurants in Nashville that are really knocking it out of the park that you could talk about? You know what I mean? <laughs> Besides your own, obviously.
2: Yeah. Let me tell you about my restaurants. No, there, there's a <laughs> bunch of restaurants in Nashville that have knocked it out of the park.
1: I mean, you could tell us about your restaurants if you want. There's nothing wrong with that.
2: No, I mean, look, you know what? One of the things that we did at our restaurant, the Green Hills Grill, uh, which is a which is a fantastic local community restaurant that that um, this is this is right in the heart of Green Hills. We focus so hard on to go and delivery and we have our own vehicles. We bought our own vehicles and we do it in house so we don't use any third-party people, but we own that entire process, and we killed it throughout the pandemic. I mean, that's one of those things that we just really put a ton of time and energy on um, on doing to goes and really yeah. executing the whole thing to where we own the process. We're dropping food off of the people's houses saying, thank you, Dr. Johnson. We'll see you tomorrow type situation where it's not an Uber Eats guy dropping a the back door just going – I move back to my car now, or you know, it's cold.
0: Very personalized. We
2: we were able to own that entire process, which was huge, and it's continued to this day. I thought that the innovation of doing staycation series. We had a restaurant in Nashville called the 404 Kitchen, who did, who partnered with these these amazing chefs, Andrew Zimmern, and um, gosh, why can't I think of his name right now? They, several celebrity chefs, and they did the staycation series. You could eat their food to go or uh come in we had restaurants that were doing vacation series where you could actually they're taking you know the food of bali and they had this whole thing and then you'd come home and eat a dinner based there's just a lot of stuff like that that's just really really cool um that i think you'll continue to see that to, i think to go and delivery isn't going to stop i think that's something that will if, if you continue to focus on to go and delivery you're going to do really well
1: Yeah, I think that's, I agree. That's got to be an inevitable change out of this whole thing. I mean, for better or for worse too, like you said, I think a lot of people are finding out that that's not the easiest thing to plug and play into as much as third-party apps want to have you believe it is. And we personally, I'm in a different industry slightly. We have retail beer uh, that we were delivering through a lot of the pandemic and that sets up its own host of different issues. But do you feel like there's, what's the debate going like in in Nashville right now? I'm very curious to ask because of anyone in other cities, but the, uh, the third-party app debate seems like it's roaring in most cities. And I just am very curious to hear what the reception has been in a city like Nashville. Are people clinging to the third parties? Are they trying to do more of the independent stuff? Are they, like you said, the experiential thing is certainly taking off for a lot of places, but not everyone has the budget for Andrew Zimmerman to come in and like cook. So are there people kind of like moving on that level? Is there stuff like that happening? Um,
2: to answer the, the third-party delivery apps, I mean, everybody for the most part use them there's been probably three or four different concepts that have gone to their own model i think people are afraid of leasing cars and having teenagers drive their cars and mvrs and insurance and i think just all of that putting that together a lot of people are like i'll just use uber eats but when you look at the cost of uber eats and postmates and doordash and delivery dudes or whatever you've got I mean 30%. And still so like, "Well, I got it down to 25%." I'm like, "I that's awesome. I didn't know you were making 25% margins." I mean, yeah. <laughs> the average margin for a national chain I think is 13 or 14%. The average yeah. margin for an independently owned restaurant is like the actual profit that they take home is like 5%. Yeah, so
1: nothing. I mean
2: I don't understand the idea of it's cash flow to me. Like, "Well, I'm just at least selling something. I'm keeping people employed." And I'm inflating my sales, but I'm not making anything off of it.
1: I was never the greatest P&L guy, but I was waiting for someone to explain to me how the margins could be so weak on this and they would still be paying out the fees to these delivery apps. And I still I was waiting for an explanation and no one ever gave me one. I was like, oh, so I guess as most people see it as a marketing ploy or marketing tool to be in front of their customers. But at the end of the day, why would you? over backwards because it clearly creates more mess in the kitchen for right. some people uh, tickets out the window. You basically have to hire and staff up to meet these dishes that are going out that you may not even see a dime on. So I just was curious to bring that up because I know that's like one of the ongoing issues, especially since COVID throttled the delivery things so forward.
2: But you're seeing so many more uh, delivery companies come into the mix. There's now like crowdfunded delivery services where people bought a fleet of cars and they're trying to get off on their own. We're local. We're we'll only charge you 15%. It's like, Still 15% ridiculous. There's one where now, there's one in Nashville where you can actually, I'm actually going to have the guy on uh, my show, Nashville Restaurant Radio, soon. It, he's actually, the owners are buying in. The owners of the restaurants are paying in and they're actually going to be the owners of all of the vehicles and then they get profit sharing as they go along. So it pays them back every month to utilize this service. So the more people that use it, the more money they actually make. So I'd say they, they buy in to start the whole thing and then they get all the money back. Which I'm like, it it all seems gimmicky to me. Like I
1: don't- Cooperatives, you love to see it. Yeah, and
2: so we've identified that we say (laughs) to lease a car, you know, at $400 a month and then to pay insurance at X amount a month, plus you hire kids to drive it with good records that are 18 and over. And we only deliver three miles or four miles within the the building. But, you know, at $1,200 a month doing- of twenty five percent of our business, we're, we're doing a lot better doing our own. I mean, it makes it makes all of the sense in the world. Now, thank God, we have I mean, knock on wood, we haven't had any major catastrophes or anything, but there there is risk involved.
0: So, okay, I have to ask then: What do you think the restaurant world looks like this time next year?
2: I think it's insane. <laughs> uh, I think that it's
0: wait, wait, wait—more insane than it is, or insane? Yeah, I mean, I don't. <laughs> It's hard to predict, right?
2: No, I think next year, I think you're saying next year in June of next year, I think that everything is going to be so wide open and loosey-goosey and just crazy. Get out there. And do I, mean, I think it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. I really do. I think that everybody, there's still a bunch, I think there's still a bunch of stragglers out there who are still staying home, who still want to be safe, who are not doing this, who are not going out. And, uh, I'm, I'm double vaccinated since January and they've told me I need to live like a normal life. So I'm doing that. Um, You've earned and, it. <laughs> and there's a bunch of people who are still afraid. And by next year, all of those people are going to be out. There's a lot of pent up.
1: So I misunderstood you. When you say, when you say insane, you mean it's going to be super busy. Like a lot of customers, people are going to be fighting for tables. I think it's going to be great. Insane to me means
2: good in this industry.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Insane. That's, that's why we're all here. Right. You know, <laughs> We're all a little insane.
2: Yeah, I like to live on the edge of chaos. <laughs>
1: yes, I mean that's there's, no one likes a boring restaurant job, and we got yeah. There's not a little chaos. You the right industry. Yeah, should, certainly. And after this last year, if you're still feeling it, then yeah, we're definitely definitely in the right place. I'm also curious to ask you too, in terms of the insanity thing. Do you think customers' expectations certainly shifted a lot during COVID? And it's something I experienced on my end: people being incredibly gracious for being open and to serving people. I'm wondering what the runway on that goodwill is like, or if customers' expectations have now become much more understanding. Have we blown open through some window here? Or is this whole thing going to happen? And then, you know, by... The holidays of this year people are going to go back into kind of just saying i want it my way or the highway because i've noticed that a lot of restaurants have have been given a lot of leeway and i've certainly felt that in my places people are much more understanding but i don't know if that's already wearing thin or not i can't decide if it's the summer heat or what people's short attention span or short memory i I can't tell but curious to hear what you think
2: well i think we learned a new term karen right throughout this whole thing (laughs) is that there are Karens out there. There are always going to be Karens. <laughs> so this is interesting because we're talking about This is. – I'm glad you brought this up because I, I have both sides of this argument that I will put out there for you guys to tell me what you think. People are amazing. And the amount of generosity that people gave to local restaurants, restaurants in general, tipping on to-go's, just supporting crowdfunding things, it's just supporting people on the front line, service industry people – Tipping 30, 40, 50, 100%. There's a TikTok girl that goes out and gives, uh, her name's Lexi Lately. She's from Nashville. She gives out thousands of dollars in tips to people that's crowdfunded through her TikTok page. All this stuff is great. But I, I fear, I fear that now we've created this monster, right? You come pick up food. I'm expecting you to leave me at 15% to 20% to 30% tip is 30% the standard going rate for any to go food? And where do we, when do we get back to tipping for service? Because I am a firm believer in earning that gratuity. I'm a firm believer in tips is an acronym that stands for to ensure proper service, right? So If you come to me, if I'm in an Uber car and I'm on the phone and I don't want you to, like, I don't need to talk to you and the guy recognizes that and just is quiet and takes me where I need to go, I give him a tip. If I tell him, say, hey, I'm on the telephone, he's like, oh, that's good, man. Hey, did you know about this restaurant? I'm like, hey, hey, stop. Like, I don't want that. Or if they're very, if they're very, if they just, there's so many reasons why you would leave a gratuity. Uh, I went to this restaurant not long ago and it's a burger place here in nashville and literally there's a sign on the wall that says stand here place your order listen for your name to be called pick up your food clean up after yourself have a good day right this is what it says so literally you walk up to a counter you say i'll have the number four cheeseburger and a coke and she goes okay she hands you a cup and says wait for your name to be called and then she flips the screen over and says do you want to leave a tip and i'm like are you gonna do? Like, there's a sign that says "You do everything." Like, why am I leaving a tip? And it's a. Well, I'm a restaurant worker. So, are you getting? Are you too? Because you're 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 an hourly employee. You're not a two thirteen employee. You didn't do anything for a tip. When are we? When when does service come back? When do we have to really hustle to build service? And I'm, we still need to support restaurant people, guys. We're not back to normal. We need more people in this industry. I'm not saying I tipped her. I did. I left a nice tip. But at some point, when do we get back to? Hey, I'm going to go above and I'm going to go above and beyond because I want to earn the gratuity that I get. I want somebody to be so appreciative of the service that I gave them that they tip me. It's an unpopular thing to talk about right now, but w- when do we get back to that? And when are guests going to go? Hey, you guys are not doing anything. You know, you're not doing anything for me. I'm not. I'm not going to tip anymore because people. I think are, people are getting really exce- are getting complacent.
1: No, I'm really. I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's tough. Honestly, like you said, I think this also it's an important debate to have because again, here's something where COVID kind of puts us at a fork in the road. And do we go back to the way things were, or maybe we change things going forward? Because the debate on in a place like New York, where a bunch of my colleagues have gone tip free. Uh, hasn't panned out in a lot of places, but I would argue that some of them, maybe it didn't work out because COVID. A lot of them didn't switch back until the pandemic kind of forced them to. I think what you're seeing, maybe the goodwill, extra bank accounts that people had, had people tipping more on retail, because we certainly saw that as well during the pandemic. But now that things are cleared up, maybe people aren't just flushing the bank accounts at some point because we're out and spending more money. Maybe it comes time for the, 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 serious need for a conversation in this country about what tipping culture means yeah, and how maybe the people behind the counter aren't asking for more money because they're greedy. Uh, and I, and I agree with you, there are certain situations where I find myself very awkward where I'm like, well, I'm not sure I want to, you know, swipe left on this 25% tip that it's automatically asking me to give you because we have like a five word interaction, but I also don't want to be that guy that's emptying my bank account out because I want to, you know, be a good guy. Uh, I think at the end of the day, maybe it comes down to shifting the model. That's it.
2: That's it. Shift the model,
1: right? You have to like idea of of come through. Maybe we we charge differently so that we can hire and pay appropriately. I just I don't know who needs to start this conversation. I think it definitely on the ownership side, it's been one where some thought leaders have kind of come through on it, but it's difficult to talk about because it's seismic, and I I really hope the last year has taught people that maybe there is a little more leeway in what we are allowed to charge people. Uh, so, and I certainly see on the show, as we talked about before on the labor side, there's gotta be leeway on what we pay people. So I think there, I think the conversation is the the dam is at the breaking point on this conversation. And I'm really glad you brought it up the way you did because I don't think it's selfish to assume that like every situation we find ourselves in now warrants, uh, you know, very gratuitous, Gratuity. I think you. I think where I love going out and being able to drop thirty percent on a drink when I've got you know a bunch of cash in my pocket after something. But that can't be the way every transaction goes. And I don't think that people should be relying on that on the other side of the counter. I I think it's just as important for the people working to know that they're going to get paid as it is for you to know that the the transaction is a fair one. So I think I think you brought up incredibly good points. And it's kind of the future is going to be you know very interesting to see what happens. I want to see
2: people in the service industry. Earn it, and let me. I'm going to go back on that because I feel like we do, and I'm an advocate for everybody tipping. But when you're constantly over tipped for doing the bare minimum, hey, look, I'm here, and the people like, oh no, hey, I'm so sorry, you're here. Let me over tip you. All of a sudden, you go, hey, I don't have to go above and beyond anymore. People just tip me now, and it's systemic. It happens without you even realizing it. And what I want to get back to is, and I've I've led throughout this both of my teams that. We have to still create memories for people. We have to be memorable every single day. Every single thing that you do, when you leave here, are people going to remember you? Are they going to remember the service that they got? It doesn't matter where we are, what time it is. People need that right now. They need a high level of service, no matter what the tipping is. So we, we typically get really good tips at our restaurants. And there are places that sometimes don't get good tips, but that's a matter of service. And I just, I'm afraid that in the industry where people have been very gracious for a long time, we could get lazy. And I think that in the service industry, we have to step it up. This is our time to go, hey, these people took care of us. And now we're going to elevate everything we do to show the people out there that this is what service is. And I think the great places will do that. But I think that the tipping culture is definitely a conversation that needs to be had because that awkward comfort, that awkward feeling that you have, I mean, it's just, it's a thing.
0: Yeah. I think that when we think about the industry and how it's changing all around, this is a conversation that will be ongoing staffing. I think I, That's tough. I, I don't know from my perspective, it's like, um, how do we look at wages in general? And kind of what you were talking about a little bit, Zach, how do we actually bake in some of that a little bit more? I mean, I, I know myself, I, I see it a lot on, I've been to some restaurants. I remember when I was in Seattle, there was a lot of restaurants we went to and they just told us from the get go, Hey, gratuity is already included. So you don't need to worry about it unless you feel like you want to add a little bit more. And I actually really like that because I want to support, but I do agree with you. It does make me question. Sometimes when I go somewhere and I say, hey, I just want a cup of coffee and they hand me a cup of coffee and then they turn around the screen. And then I'm like, oh God, what do I do? What do I do? So I think it's. Um, I think this conversation is going to be an ongoing one. So let me ask you one final question here, Brandon. What I know we asked about one year from now, what does the industry look like five years from now? And what do you think operators, besides the staffing in that, uh, need to have their eyes on?
2: I have no idea.
0: That's a fair answer.
2: I, I if, you would, if you would have asked me in 2019 what, what's in store for the 20s, I mean, I, I really am not shocked by anything um, in a divided world. Uh, what I would like to see people do is I would like to see people care about service. I want to see people care about the guest experience and care about each other. I want to see restaurants take care of their people. I want to see restaurants not, I don't want to see owners look at this current tip situation and go, well, hell, everybody's tipping so much. I can pay them less because then we can like, no, no. Pay your employees a wage where they want to retire from your restaurant. Mm. They want to be in your restaurant until they I want this to be a job that people can be proud of. I want the restaurant industry to be a place that people can work where they go, yeah. I, I'm a server, I'm a bartender, I just, that they're proud of yeah. every single time because it's a great environment to work in. You can make a lot of money, you can make a lot of relationships, you can serve people. And I think that just elevating the level of service, not only to the guests, but- as owners to their people, caring, you know, just, just being good people. And there's so much focus on everything else. Like I'm a big fan of fundamentals. I think that we just need to focus on getting people their drinks quickly, smiling more and, you know, serving people and serving the people who serve people. I mean, we as an industry could do a much better job of taking care of our own.
0: Well it sounds like you're doing that with your book club and your podcast and you're trying to support this community and to get people feeling really good about it and being part of this the restaurant experience from both sides of the table. So I'm Trying to. I look forward to seeing what's 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 next for you. Likewise. I mean, you
1: got your finger on the pulse in so many ways. It's going to be interesting. You have a better insight on this than most of the people we've talked to just from being involved in so many different angles of the industry. So it's really great to be able to talk to someone who uh, who's experienced it at all. So thank you for talking to us.
2: It's an honor to be on your show.
0: So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology follow back of house on twitter at B-O-H underscore news and at we are back of house on all other channels wanna hear more listeners then you need to head to backofhouse.io where you can find the latest on restaurant technology food service industry news a ton of free how to guides like how to digitize your space how to work with food influencers the latest on restaurant relief and more interviews with industry experts and while you're there Definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, Eat.News. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms.